And I'm actually wondering if there's going to be an eagle minion in the middle of the aisle, like so not near the <laughs> bathrooms, but halfway down. Is Butnik going to say, Wait a <laughs> hey, ladies, hey, ladies. <laughs> This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by my intercontinental co-hosts, straight from the homeland, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Aloha from Tel Aviv. Aloha from Tel Aviv. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. You sound a little differently, Liel, in Israel. Maze uh, different. Lama, you say this. Does he sound like a fully actualized Jew? Like he's in the homeland. He has. He doesn't have to hide who he is. No more of that shame. No more of that that mealy mouth. Yeah, that Liel. I've always thought of him as someone who sort of like cowers in shame. But it's weird because you sound different, Liel, and I also sound different. And I have a cold, and I want everyone to know it. And I apologize to our listeners. <laughs> Here I could finally. I could finally speak the way I uh, was always meant to speak. Can I, before we even go there, can I can I tell you an amazing story? I have so many stories. Wait, wait. First, before you share with us your fabulous story and way to raise the bar, it better it better be good stuff. Now, I want to tell the listeners that they should hang on because the Jew of the week this week is a super Jew, an ultra Jew, a mega Jew. It's Wayne Hoffman, who is not only our boss at Tablet, but is the author of an insanely captivating new nonfiction book about a murder in his family called The End of Her, Racing Against Alzheimer's to Solve a Murder, which may be the best subtitle I've ever heard, Racing Against Alzheimer's to Solve a Murder. It's out now, and he joins us for an exclusive peek inside the book. So, you know, this is a serious episode. But Liel, catch us up. What's going on over there? So I'm, I'm having some difficulties adjusting to, <laughs> to my old new uh, hometown. Uh, we're here for two weeks, which is a long time. And I had forgotten the cable that makes this year recording of an Orthodox with the travel mic I have possible. And so I think to myself, not a problem. This is Tel Aviv. Everyone has like 17 eye devices. I'll just go and you know, go to the Apple store. I kind of know more or less where it is. Just buy my cable. It'll be fine. So I go to Dizengoff Street, which is where I vaguely recall the Apple store is. You know Dizengoff? Maze Dizengoff. And I ask, um, I ask people, you know, do you know where the Apple store is? And I get a complete blank look. It's sort of, you know, I said, maybe I asked the wrong person. Okay, I asked the second person. Excuse me, sir, do you, do you know where the Apple store is? He's like, no, no, I don't know any such thing. Like, that's really strange. And I go down the street, literally like a crazy person, asking everyone if they know where the Apple store is. And everyone gives me these blank stares. And it felt like, I don't know if you remember this movie that came out a couple of years ago about an alternate reality in which no one remembers the Beatles except for this one guy. That's a good movie. I saw that on three airplanes. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great movie and it's a total airplane movie. But I was like, am I in an alternate universe in which no one remembers <laughs> Apple devices except for me? <laughs> and, at, and at some point it's like, oh, the Apple store, you know, like for your iPhone. And then this woman is like, ah, oh, you mean the Apple store. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? It's like, yeah, the Apple. Where's the Apple store? It's like, it's across the street, the Apple store. It was like the most kind of charming. Like there are moments in which it's like too cool for school, cosmopolitan city. Just just allows itself to be heard really as I I really love it here. So you got you got the cable and and now you're here. What else is what else is going on over there? So I wake up early in the morning and figure out, you know, I want to go pray Shachris with, with my fellow Yidden, and I'm in Tel Aviv. Admittedly, not the most religious city in the world, but okay, probably there's going to be some shul around. So I, I walk, you know, a couple blocks, and I find this super sweet-looking shul, and I walk in. There are 10 
all Yemeni Jews and they're all sitting there, you know, mumbling the prayers as people in traditional shuls are known to do. And there's this guy, the Baltfilah, you know, the person reading or leading the prayer with his back to us, obviously, because he's facing the bima, and he's covered in a talis and he's reading in this voice. And it was like if Laurence Olivier, you know, converted and became a chazan, it, his pronunciation was so incredibly just impeccable and moving. And, and all his body was sort of like swaying in this kind of super, you felt like you were watching a production. You felt like someone had stage managed this whole thing. And I'm just sitting there transfixed, seeing like, oh my God, like what, do Israeli shows like hire famous actors to be their chazan? And then he finishes the prayer and turns around. And it is this guy whose name for his own privacy, I won't mention, but is one of the most famous actors in Israel who, you know, between seven and eight every morning is the kind of volunteer prayer leader in the local shul and then is the big Hollywood star. And it's just, it made me so incredibly happy because literally, only only here, only in Israel could such things happen. Uh, Stephanie, what's up with you? Okay, so I heard the greatest thing and I want to share it with you too and I want to share it with all of our listeners. Okay, you know how much we love names for people who are half Jewish, half something else? Sort of like a Hindu or a pizza bagel. Yep. Semi-Semites, basically. Semi-Semites, yep. I heard one this weekend from my dear friend Irene, who is Greek and her husband is Jewish. And I well, I don't know if I want to ask you to guess what the term is. Half, no, no, I, I, I really want this. So half Greek, half Jewish. Shwarma bagel. That, that's not Greek. But you're in the right sound. A gyro Jew? Oh, that would be good. But it's not that. Gyro. Juro. No, no, you were, you were closer with shawarma. <laughs> I was closer with shawarma. That's what I know about. Spanakopita <laughs> in a pita? <laughs> well, that actually would be better, but it's a spanakopita bagel is a term that, that that they use. I don't think she originated it. She's There's another spanakopita bagel that's growing up with her son, Sam. And this actually came up <laughs> in the conversation of the other spanakopita bagel just told me that I should really buy the newest Jewish encyclopedia if I haven't already. Um, and Irene was like, I do, in fact, know the author, uh, all three authors of that book. So, yeah, spanakopita bagel. Greeks, along with Mormons, are as close to being Jewish as you can be without being Jewish, I think. I mean, obviously, they're Greek Jews. I feel like with all due respect to Irene, who is a friend of the show and whom we love, there are a lot of syllables in Spanakopita Bagel, and I feel like somebody in the J. Crew can come no, up with No, but that's the point. Terser. Like, you have a long Greek last name. Also, the pleasure of saying Spanakopita... I can't even say it now. Spanakopita Bagel. I love it. Something out of I Dream of Genie. Spanakopita Bagel. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. News of the Jews. Big item of news of the Jews this week comes from Washington, D.C. And for this bit of news, we go to our National Football League correspondent, Stephanie Butnick. Yes, this news has nothing to do with the Super Bowl, but entirely everything to do with a football player I've never heard of, Washington Commander's defensive tackle, Jonathan Allen, who was doing one of those, like, ask me anythings on Twitter where people could write in and, you know, ask him anything. And someone said, which three people dead or alive would you want to have at the dinner table? His response was his granddad, Hitler, and Michael Jackson. <laughs> People didn't take too kindly to 
any of that. And then, you know, he has since deleted that tweet. He also deleted his explanation tweet where he said he's a military genius and I love military tactics. But honestly, I would want to pick his brain as to why he did what he did. I'm also assuming, so in this scenario, he's assuming that the people he's chosen to have dinner with have to answer all his questions honestly. So basically, it's like he has Hitler at the table with the truth potion and Hitler has to tell him the truth. Hitler in the study with the gas. It's the worst game of Clue ever. By the way, I don't like the like, oh, I love military tactics and therefore I'm obsessed with World War II and Hitler. I feel like that is a real genre of thing. Also, Hitler was not a military tactician. Nor a genius for that matter. But could we focus on what matters here? Which is, first of all, I would freaking love to have dinner with Hitler. There's no question about it. I mean, come on, man. If you have Hitler answering all your questions, so much to ask. But the really important question I feel uh, is, is what do you serve Hitler? Now, the other day, uh, I dined at a Tel Aviv establishment called Shmulik Cohen, which is exactly as it sounds, which serves uniquely and almost exclusively the types of food that, unless you're deep shtetl, uh, you are going to find disgusting. So I'm imagining this kind of, uh, and, and I, of course, love, I imagine this dinner is like, Hitler, this is pcha. This should be your appetizer. What is it? It's jellied cow hooves. Uh, here you go. Enjoy. This is kishko. So it's innards. I don't, oh, you don't like that? I'm sorry. Also, it's obviously a Shabbos dinner, right? I mean, you have Hitler has to he has to sway during Shalom Aleichem, and then they do the full kiddush with the wine. I mean, the endless one where you think you're done and you're never done. I'm sorry, Hitler. We don't speak after Natilatia Diamond before we eat bread. That's, are you even from around? Do you even go here? <laughs> do you even know anything about Jews? Here's my one flaw. By the way, he that later apologized, clarified he was he just he wanted to grill him. He didn't want to give him props. That's what he said. He wasn't trying to give him props. Here's my question. Does anyone not know why Hitler did what he did? It seems like actually no one has better laid out the the reasoning behind why they did what they did than Hitler, who literally wrote a book all about it. Like, <laughs> like why did you want to round up and kill and gas all the Jews? Did you not like them, Hitler? Was it or was it something else? <laughs> now, if, however, the chef were not Shmulek Cohen, but Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, it would be a different appetizer being served that evening at Shabbos dinner. So let's have a listen. Not only do we have the D.C. jail, which is the D.C. gulag, but now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police spying on members of Congress, spying on the legislative work that we do. This woman is a national treasure. Producer Josh Cross sent me a very apt follow-up to this very important story, uh, and he said that the only thing uh, worse than being caught by the gazpacho police uh, is being bombarded by the Luftwaffe. This is amazing. I almost feel like the clip speaks for itself. Like there's nothing we could say that will make it more hilarious and more absurd than just listening to it. On the one hand, I have always agreed with William F. Buckley's probably apocryphal argument that it'd be better to be governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston phone book than by the faculty of Harvard University. I rejoice over the influence of the people over their elected leaders, since by and large, I think that they show more wisdom than their leaders or than their intellectuals. I've often been quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. I don't think that professional intellectuals and experts are necessarily the people you want. The, The technocratic society that they would want to give us is not always the wisest or the best society. And there is something for having a truly small-D democratic society in which anyone, including morons, can end up in Congress. On the other hand, I feel like to some extent that is premised on a sort of civic Republican idea that the morons who run for Congress are educated, thoughtful, you know, self-educated, well-read 
humans. They don't necessarily have the fanciest degrees or the most money or come from the right lineage, but they're people who are serious people of ideas who want to know stuff. And instead, what you have now are people who are schooled by their own particular Facebook bubble and know just enough to sound stupid, right? It's, it, it's the, the, the principle of a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. She knows there's something called the gazpacho. She knows that they were a police somewhere in, you know, the 19th century in, you know, Czechoslovakia under the Third Reich and that they wanted to kill the- Under the um, Qing dynasty. And they wanted to kill the uh, Decepticons uh, because yeah. that's how the war for the planet <laughs> with, turned with, out to be. With space lasers, right? It's Correct. like, you know, she's one of those people who uses really like multisyllabic words, right? Like we're going to kill the Decepticons with, you know, your la- we're going to use your laserology on the Decepticons. I like her story better. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I like, whereas the Gestapo feature regularly, like in my nightmares, the Gaspacho police is like much less frightening to me. It's as if you have a nightmare in which there are Gestapo and you wake up and in fact, Ben Cohen is serving you Gaspacho. And it's like, oh, this is better. Here's a hot take. And it's, it's, it's the fact that I hate gazpacho. Why is it not hot? I think it's a chill take. It's a chill take. Who wants that? Who wants that? Disagree. Love gazpacho. But listen, there is one more news item uh, that, that I personally cannot let us conclude this, this segment of News of the Jews without sharing because I love flying, and which is weird. It's when you're actually your calmest. It really is. I'm in such an... You've seen me. And I'm totally... Do you remember zen- the time I tried to pick a fight with you about politics on a plane? Yes. I think the entire airplane remembers. And you were just like, I'm just, I have my meditation app on. (laughs) You were doing mindfulness. I just want to hang out. Okay, what's the story? Uh, I love flying. I love flying Gal Al because it truly is the world's most exceptional airline. One of the reasons that I love flying Gal Al most is because at some point, uh, everyone uses the Zamanim app, this app that tells you when the correct times for prayer is, and they have a function that calculates the route of your flight and tells you precisely when the correct time to pray chakras is. And at some point, uh, like, it's almost like, you know those bad 80s action movies, like people be on the plane and at some point, a bunch of shady looking men would sort of like nod their heads to each other. It's time. And come up and, yeah. you know, say, it's time, everyone down, this is a hijacking. So on an off flight, be this, but at some point, a bunch of like bearded dudes would get up, like yank out the fillings, and then move to the back and pray chakras together, which is my absolute favorite part of any El Al flight because it, it sounds so childish, but I do feel like I'm just, just a smidgen closer to God when I pray on the plane. <laughs> Plus, I'm standing on the galleys and there's always some annoyed, you know, air flight attendant kind of being like, do you really have to be here, you primitive monkey? I, I kind of, I, I love everything about this. Well, it's great because you're closer to God, but you're also closer to the bathroom. That's correct. No, although, aha, of course, halakhically, there's a distance that you must uh, observe from the bathroom. So the whole thing is very well calculated in the galley. Wait, actually, you know exactly where to stand? Well, no, but you know how far from a bathroom you have to be because there's like seven pages of Tom with that. Wait, but what would be amazing is if the app actually geolocated you to make sure <laughs> that you are within, you know, three cubits away from- these apps work guys, on airplane guys, mode? The Tom, no, but, but it couldn't because the Tom then has all these discussions. This is worth having for our listeners here who are interested in both religion and excretions. Uh, the Tom then asks, you know, what do you move away for? This is in tractate brachot. Like one rabbi would say, you need to walk so many, you know, cubits from the bathroom. And then the other one says, no, man, it's actually the smell that's bothering you. So you need, because that's what will be distracting you. So you need to walk four cubits from the moment you stop smelling the smell. It's a genius type of thing. But El Al, which I believe is now uh, owned by uh, a, a new owner who's Haredi, is now having a trial run 
of organized in-flight chakras sessions, which I, I truly hope is available on my next flight from Tel Aviv to New York a few weeks from now, because I prayed in my seat, not wanting this time around, not wanting to cause any trouble with COVID and everything. But an organized in-flight prayer would just be it's the greatest amenity. What's I don't the even point? need to fly first class. I well, just need an organized chakras. Really? Wouldn't that ruin everything? You mean I mean, it's not the, disruptive. Is it the point of El Al, you know, mile high chakras davening that it's disorganized, that it comes together organically as you guys shoot each other looks across the aisle and, you know, somebody says to Schmoikel, who says to Yossi, who says to Nassen, it's time. And you all rise up together. I mean, when you have a, a flight attendant, when you have Haredi flight attendant come and say, gentlemen, C'est l'heure. It is time. The hour has arrived. Up and say, tradition, tradition. <laughs> By the way, this is they could do two things at once. They could first have all these guys change seats because they don't want to sit next to women. And then they also go to pray. So maybe like they go to pray and the women all have to shuffle to get another seat. Speaking of which, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to change the topic, but do you remember our conversation about the plane that had to be rerouted because the Israelis self-upgraded themselves? I mean, how could I forget? When we say never forget, I think we're talking about that incident. On my flight, literally, I we were the first ones on the plane because we're with kids and we're a bit slower. So we we weren't even like we didn't even take out our coats, and already four fellow passengers were sort of like traipsing along towards the front of the plane. It's just amazing. But uh, does that mean now that we have organized pairs, is there going to be like like an an in flight gabai like they have in a shul? Like, is there a guy coming like, excuse me, wake up, we need a tenth for a minion, come. First, you put your tefillin on, and then you help the person next to you with theirs. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brouse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Wayne Hoffman is Tablet's executive editor. That means he signs our paychecks. But more important, he's an author of many, many books. And the latest, I have to say, as a Wayne Hoffman completist, I have to say the latest is the best of them all. It's called The End of Her, Racing Against Alzheimer's to Solve a Murder. It goes into a family mystery that has been unsolved for multiple generations. And we're going to play you a little trailer of Wayne telling us about the book, a little recorded piece he did that introduces the book. And after that, have a listen to our conversation with our boss, literary superstar, Wayne Hoffman. My mother was a great storyteller. Most of her best stories were funny ones, at least in retrospect, about growing up poor in Jersey City, surrounded by a full cast of slightly insane relatives. When I was a kid, these family stories kept me very entertained. But one of them always stood out, and this one wasn't so funny. When my mother was a little girl, she found a photograph of her grandfather with a strange woman. She asked her mother, who's this with Zeta Duvid? Her mother said, that's my mother. But my mother had met her grandmother and this was not her. So her mother clarified, funny story. The woman you think is my mother is actually my stepmother. This woman, Sarah Brooks, was my mother. My mother asked, what happened to her? And this is the story her mother told her. When I was a little girl in Winnipeg, she began, my mother Sarah was breastfeeding my baby sister Anne on the front porch in winter when a drive-by sniper shot her dead, leaving the child at her breast unharmed. I was never told about this grandmother. I happened to look through a desk drawer when I was... I don't know, like I could have been seven or eight years old. And I said, who are these people? And my father, my mother never told me. My father said, this is your Zeta David, and this is your grandma, Sarah, who was killed in the drive-by shooting. This is your mother's mother. Yes. And your mother never met My mother believed this explanation. And when I was growing up, my mother told me this story many times. I never really believed it but I never openly contradicted her. Fast forward to 2010. My mother, in her late 60s, was diagnosed with dementia, what would later develop into Alzheimer's disease. When I went home to visit for Passover that year, 
I brought along a video camera so I could record my mother telling stories about her family before she okay. forgot them. We're going to do your family tree now. Uh, so first, tell me where you were born and when you were born. In Jersey City, um, April 22nd, 1940. You were the oldest of two siblings. Your sister is... When we got to the story about the drive-by sniper, it was pretty clear I had my doubts. And maybe my mother did, too. Yeah. So we'll Sarah is shot in this drive-by shooting in Winnipeg. That's right. That somehow the family believes happens. So Sarah's out of the picture. Right. David, who now has three children he hasn't given away, and the one he has given away. But I didn't actually say outright that I didn't believe it. My mother was trying to share what she knew before it vanished from her memory. So I held my tongue. For a couple days, anyway. Which is pretty good for me. Going through old photos while we sat on the couch after the Seder, we came across the photo of my mother's Zeta Dovid with the mysterious Sarah Brooks, the same photo my mother had discovered decades earlier in Jersey City. My mother launched into the story of the drive-by sniper again, and this time I stopped her. I call bullshit, I said. I have never believed this story. First of all, nobody was breastfeeding outside in winter in Winnipeg. Second, how many drive-by snipers were hunting young mothers on their front porches in broad daylight? And this was a hundred years ago. Was he driving down the street in a Model T shooting a musket? My mother was not amused. If that's not what happened, she said, then what did happen? I've been a journalist for more than 30 years. I figured it'd take me a few weeks to find out. Google this name, search that database, and voila. I was wrong. It took years. And the longer it took to do research, the more my mother's memory kept fading. I wanted to get the answers while she could still understand them. This wasn't just a random anecdote about a random person. My mother, Susan, had been named in memory of her grandmother, Sarah something her mother told her when she first found that photo as a child. They shared the Hebrew name Shifra. Names turned out to be important. The main reason I couldn't find any information about my great-grandmother was because of her name. To me, Sarah Brooks sounded like a refined British actress, someone who tended roses and sipped tea with her pinky in the air not a poor Russian-Jewish immigrant raising four kids in Winnipeg's North End, in what the newspapers called the Hebrew colony. Every time I searched for Sarah Brooks, I hit a dead end. But searching under her Hebrew name, Shifra, or using her married surname, Feinstein, didn't work either. In fact, I couldn't find any information about my great-grandfather, David, or David, Feinstein, or any of my relatives who'd immigrated to Winnipeg from Russia. In 2012, I finally hit pay dirt by changing the spelling. Sarah Feinstein turned up on a census report, married to a man named David. Then, using that spelling, I found a death certificate on file from 1913, when my grandmother would have been about four years old and her baby sister Anne would still have been breastfeeding. 
the cause of death was summed up in five shocking words. Bullet wound through brain. Homicidal. What if the crazy story my mother had told me was true after all? Then I thought about it. If a young mother was murdered, it would have been in the newspapers, right? I searched the archives of Winnipeg's Major Daily, and there it was. A story about my great-grandmother's murder, with the same photo that my mother had discovered as a child. So my mother was right. My great-grandmother was murdered. But to be fair, I was also right in calling bullshit, because not a single other detail she'd heard was correct. It wasn't winter. It wasn't on the porch. She wasn't breastfeeding. It wasn't a drive-by sniper. It was something even more mysterious, more sinister. I'd spent years searching for Sarah Feinstein, but a century ago, her name was known all across Canada, particularly in the Jewish community. Tens of thousands of Jews had recently immigrated to Canada, fleeing pogroms and persecution at home, only to find that anti-Semitism had followed them across the world. The story of her murder made headlines from Montreal to Toronto to Vancouver in English and Yiddish newspapers. But the killer was never found. So I put my journalist hat back on and set out to solve a grisly crime that had been unsolved for a century, hoping to uncover the truth in time for it to mean something to my mother. Along the way, I'd meet relatives I didn't know I had, dive into the Jewish history of Winnipeg and, unexpectedly, rural Saskatchewan, and retrace my family's efforts to rebuild after the traumatic murder, the most brutal crime the police in Winnipeg had ever seen. You don't think I'd really tell you how it ended, right? For that, you'll have to read the book. Wayne Hoffman, welcome back to Unorthodox. Congratulations on this new book. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. So there's nothing I like more than a book where I'm, you know, peripherally mentioned. And you basically talk about bringing this story to a tablet meeting. I was just telling the story because it's a funny story. And you know me. I like to tell funny stories and goof off at a staff meeting. And normally when I would tell that story to friends, they would laugh or have a question, but it would be relatively a quick response. The response at tablet, you know, a room full of journalists was, well, so what really happened? And I said, well, I honestly don't know. I've tried looking a little bit here and there, but I've never found out. And they all said, that's ridiculous. Go find out the answers. Like, this is a journalism meeting. Go get the answers. And it was that afternoon that I started digging in earnest. It doesn't mean I found the answers that afternoon, but it means that that's what really got me to get moving and and to take it seriously and and make a concerted effort was the realization that, oh, yeah, I... I can do this and I should do this and it should be now. And then I feel like the next part of it was like, all of a sudden you were going off to Winnipeg. And we were like, <laughs> oh my God, you were, you were, you were really serious about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, once I, once I found out some of the answers, I really wanted to find out the rest because finding out the 
literally the headlines took some effort, but once I found one headline, I found more headlines and I had sort of a, an outline of the story, but I also only had an outline of one piece of the story. What I didn't have was what happened before the murder and also really what happened after the murder, because at some point the newspapers stop their stories and it sort of just dwindles. There's nothing more to report. So I have a pretty good sense from the newspapers about what exactly happened to my great-grandmother in terms of her actual murder and the immediate aftermath, but I didn't know what led up to it or what happened afterward. And for that, I had to go to Winnipeg and keep digging. And I was really motivated to find out how did this happen? And then what? And then what? It's like a page turner. And I had to go find out myself. What I really wanted to talk to you about, Wayne, was you begin the book, and this is interlaced throughout with the Kickstarter, the MacGuffin, if you will, is this relationship with your mom. And I was curious about that choice. The first five to 10 pages are set back in Maryland in you know the 80s and going through some stuff with your parents. And that isn't immediately relevant to the story of Sarah Brooks, but maybe you could talk to people about why you made that choice. So my mother was really the motivating factor for me. First of all, she's the person who told me this story. She's the person I first told I didn't believe this story. And she's the one who got the clock ticking on me trying to find answers because she had Alzheimer's and she was losing her memory. And I thought she's named in her grandmother's memory. It's important for her to know her family history while she can still understand it. So she's the whole reason I went on this quest. I went on it for her sake at the beginning. By the end, it's my own. But at the beginning, it's really for her. And I know everyone's supposed to be close to their mothers and have a great relationship with their mothers, except we all know people who have mothers. And we all know that that's not always the case. In my case, I'm one of those weirdos who actually was always very close to his mother. And I, I adore my mother. She's freaking hilarious. and. It's not like, oh, we're best friends. No, she was my mother. She was always my mother. But we were close in very specific ways because of the things we shared and because of some of the things we'd gone through. But I also didn't want it to appear like it was a fake storybook relationship where we never had conflict. We did. It was rare. But we did go through some things together that shaped our relationship. And I wanted to get that established right off the bat so you understood sort of why I care about my mother, and also what kind of person she was. She wasn't without flaw, but she was also wonderful. And it's not a sort of fake veneer of nostalgia for me to to mourn what I've lost of her. It's very, very real. I, I, can, I can tell a thousand pages worth of stories about my mother and 950 pages of that would be really fucking hilarious. And so you start off the book with this scene from 1987 where you're coming out and becoming politically active as a gay man in the teeth of the AIDS crisis. I mean, right into the buzzsaw of the AIDS crisis. Right there. And she was pretty cool about, medium cool about it. She was medium cool about it. She was, well, two things. First, she was cooler than most parents would have been in 1987. But more importantly, I think, is the fact that she knew she wasn't quite all the way there and she knew that she would be. So there's a point where and part of the opening, she tells me she's not ready to tell the world, for her to tell the world, but I will be. That's what she says to me. And I think both those things are important. That's where she was. And her journey is its own journey. I have my journey about coming out, but her journey about coming out 
as someone with a gay son is her own journey. She's her own person. And, you know, I didn't know all of that until actually I wrote a piece for an anthology called Mama's Boy, gay men write about their mothers. And I started writing about my coming out to my mother. And I realized, actually, I don't know how she felt. Actually, I don't know what she was thinking. Actually, I don't know what she was going through. So I called her up and interviewed her like a journalist and wound up writing the piece as a dialogue between the two of us. And I learned a lot about what she went through as a parent, learning that her son was gay in 1987 and 88, which is a really rough time to find that out. And she learned a lot about what I went through. We, we didn't discuss all of those specifics, uh, but we did for that piece. And that's how I sh- actually I got a good insight into who she was and what she thought and what she was thinking of me, which is something that's rare for a kid to have that insight. Wayne, it's it's very touching to hear you say this, which is why I'm kind of imagining that all this could have gone exactly the opposite way, right? You could have said, look, there's clearly this bizarre family fiction. It was clearly important slash taboo slash weird slash forbidden enough for at least two generations of women in my family to leave unquestioned. I too will accept this preposterous story and not do the journalistic thing and, and, and kind of go with the fiction because you need a little fiction in family. Did, did this occur to you? Do you believe in this idea or, or is the sunlight always the best cure, even in a mother-son dynamic? Well, remember, I did go along with this for almost 40 years. Although even when I went along with it, I think it was always clear that I had one eyebrow raise. You all know me. I'm not that hard to read. <laughs> you have one eyebrow raise right now as you say that. <laughs> so I could have gone along with it even longer. I decided I wanted to find out the truth. But in, in reality, I also wanted to find out a second thing that I never could find out. I wanted to find out, one, what really happened. Because clearly this was not it. There's no way this is what happened. And I, and I did find out largely what happened and who I think did it. But the second question that I could never answer is, where the hell did my grandmother come up with this cockamamie story? <laughs> where did she come up with this bullshit? That I have no idea. I talked to dozens of cousins spread around the world, and no one outside our immediate family had ever heard that drive-by sniper story, nor did anyone have any idea where the hell my grandmother came up with it, or why. Because it's not like it's a... Uh, it's a story that would put your children's minds at ease. <laughs> uh, that they're drive-by snipers shooting women in broad daylight for no reason. You're, you're growing up in D.C. and the family lore is, you, you want to know how dangerous it is now? In Winnipeg in 1913, <laughs> you could get shot on your porch in the dead of winter. You think I'm going to let you take the red line into exactly. DuPont Circle? Exactly. So I, I never did find that out. But the, the idea of just letting it rest, honestly, if my mother hadn't come down with dementia slash Alzheimer's, I might never have been quite so motivated to search for answers diligently. I might have tooled around on the internet, done some searching, come up empty, which is what I did at first, and left it at that. But you know, the combination of my mother having this time pressure where she was losing her faculties, and frankly, my coworkers prodding me to- Your coworkers being that. jerks. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting the role memory plays, right? There is this like foundational memory that turns out to be completely incorrect at the core of this story, right? This, what happened to great grandma, Sarah Brooks, of course, not her actual name as we heard in, in the segment just prior to this. So the strange thing when someone you know writes a book is that you sort of see a little bit more about the interiority of their lives. And something that was so 
moving and heartbreaking to me and will be to anyone who reads this book. You don't have to know you to, to know this, but you know, I remember seeing you standing like downstairs at the office and you were like finishing up a phone call, you know, reading this book. I was like, oh, you talk to your mom every morning on the way to work. I would see you down there sort of like finishing up a phone call. And then I'd sort of, I read about it years later and I hope I'm not being too personal here. I mean, you, we, we heard sort of snippets of, you know, you were moving your mother here or, you know, this was happening. This was happening. These were sort of the updates. You had gone to, to Maryland for the weekend to see your family. We sort of heard secondhand about the sort of the deterioration of her faculties. And that was really heartbreaking as someone who knew you. But to read this book and see how it was playing to you, I mean, it's sort of like what you talk about with your mom, like actually getting the chance to to understand how it was impacting you was just so incredibly moving for me as someone who knows you. I mean, what was it like? Is it is it sort of a sense of, I know it's not closure because this is sort of an ongoing thing. I mean, what is it like for you to put those, that your side of things into, into words like this and have it out there in the world. One of the things that I didn't realize till I started writing the book was sort of the, the full context and picture of her decline. Because with phone calls and visits, it's sort of this very staccato music where you get a, a snippet, a snippet, a snippet, a snippet. Putting it together in the book, I had to go back through things like my old calendars, through old emails that I got that I sent back and forth to my my brother, my sister, my father, my mother's friend Doris, my mother's friend Helen, and put all those things together in order. And it did two things. One, it really helped me with the chronology to remember not just the individual moments, but what followed what. So I could see trend lines, not only in how she was doing, but how I was feeling and how we were all feeling when we were anxious, when we were hopeful, when we were confused. But it also helped really construct the narrative for everyone. I mean, I got a call from my father as soon as he read the the galley a few weeks ago saying, you know, I've forgotten a lot of these things. And I also didn't remember the order they happened in. And my sister as well. Everyone forgets some things. I'd forgotten a lot of things. So it was a really good chance to pull back and see the narrative as a whole instead of a bunch of discrete moments and to tie together what I was going through, what my brother was going through, my sister, my dad, my mother's friends, and really create this sort of unified story. Um, so in that way, it was, it was helpful to write it all down because it made sense of it. When you're really in the soup, all you're thinking about is what I need to do today, what my mother needs today, how we can solve this crisis, what we can do about it, when I'm, when I'm going to visit, who's going to help my father do this, who's going to help my sister do that. Once you have the whole story, it takes on a different narrative quality. It, it actually becomes a story. And, and now that it's a book and on the shelf and yours to observe from this sort of delightful critical distance that writers only gain once they're done bleeding, um, do you look back at other family stories, at other recollections of your mother, at other instances in your life and say, well, oh, this explains a lot. I mean, oh, I kind of understand the family in a different direction now. I, I've actually rewritten family history here by understanding this one key element. Uh, some, yes. Particularly a lot of stories that my mother had told because she was such a, a, a very funny and very prolific storyteller. Um, and she told stories over and over again. So you really got to, to know them. Now I look back and I have a, sen- a better sense of the personalities involved, how they dealt with each other emotionally, what the value of truth was and what the value of humor was. The stories my mother told about when she was growing up, like going to the movies or 
the things my grandmother did or said to her, which were often horrible and funny only in retrospect. I know they're not all 100% true. I always knew they weren't. Most of them, it really doesn't matter. The story is what matters. The story of how big a Milky Way used to be in the 40s is much more important than how big it really was. The murder seemed like a different thing because there were, there were facts in dispute and I was really curious. But the rest of her stories, I sort of can accept the lack of exact veracity for the sake of humor. And as a storyteller, that's always an important thing to know when to exaggerate, when not to exaggerate. Wayne, like you and like so many people, I'm also engaged in some digging into my family history. You've taken that digging and made it into a work of literature and a, a roaring good yarn and a page turner. But for those of us who, who may never do that with our stories, but are still trying to learn as much as we can, what's some advice you have for the amateur family history sleuth? What are mistakes you made, pitfalls to avoid, things you wish you'd thought of sooner? Give, give me some best practices. A couple of, of pitfalls I didn't expect. One was that I had expected looking for official documents. And there are many related to my story. And if your history is a little bit more recent, there'll be many, many, many more if you're looking through family history. I had expected that official documents would be infallible and correct. And they are absolutely, positively not. They are riddled with minor and major errors. I mean, wrong names, wrong dates, wrong familial relations. Some of these documents were problematic because they were filled out by English-speaking clerks speaking through a translator or an interpreter to my relatives. So there was a question of translation. Or my great-grandparents forgot which English names they gave their kids because they never used them. So their names changed from census to census all the time because it just didn't matter. They didn't use their English names anyway. They forgot what they were. The other thing that, that really was helpful was in reaching out to so many cousins, and I did reach out to 20-some cousins around the world. These are distant cousins, most of whom I'd never even heard of and didn't know they existed. And in fact, more are coming out of the woodwork now. Since the book came out the past week, I've heard from more cousins I didn't know. Every cousin will tell you the same thing. Every distant relative will tell you the same thing. I really don't know much, is what they'll say. And in truth, they don't. But if every person you talk to knows three details, and you talk to 20 people, they are almost always different details. And that's a lot of information. So I would say if, you, if you're trying to search into your family history, talk to as many people as possible, because it doesn't matter if they don't remember much. They might remember something really interesting. I had one, one relative who I thought would know the least because she's even younger than I am. She's my generation, but she's in her 30s. But she knew details that her grandmother had told her that her grandmother had never told her own, her own children. So even though she was furthest removed from the past of anyone I talked to, she knew interesting details like my great-grandparents were very poor, but they had a player piano in their house on the prairie. <laughs> really? No one mentioned that. That's, it's of no significance, but it's really interesting. They had a player piano. They kept things in the barn besides horses. These are details someone might know that you wouldn't expect. I read this book and part of what was so beautiful and heartbreaking about it. And, and I think this is rooted deeply in the decision to start the book the way you do is your mother's memory fading kind of is almost a, a metaphor, a, a parallel track in which she too moves away from the realm that you occupy, the here, the now, the real world, uh, so to speak, and, and moves into this distant shadow land of, of memory and recollection and half-truths and darkness and shades that needs to be figured out. Was that 
a kind of realization that you considered as as you're writing that in in a weird way it's not just your grandmother or your mother's grandmother uh who you were investigating but but really your mother was turning into a character who now needed some figuring out right because she was no longer there to communicate and speak and be it's true and really there are a million heartbreaks from alzheimer's it's like a constant barrage of heartbreaks but one of the things i didn't realize until I got into the story was sort of the way it happens where it's not like your memory goes all of a sudden. It's not amnesia. It's that at the beginning of this process, my mother was in it with me that the two of us were looking through old photos, looking at these articles and trying to think of things together. Then she became an observer where I was doing it, but she was really interested. And then she became interested, but unable to retain things. So it, all of a sudden was like Groundhog Day. I'd have to keep telling her my revelations again and again. And then eventually she forgot not only what I had just told her, she'd forgotten her original story in the first place as she kept retreating. So eventually she becomes a passive player. And by the end, she's honestly not even really a player when I realize I want to find this out for myself. That it's not for her anymore because there's nothing, she won't understand it. And she doesn't know who I am, much less who these other players are. So, yes, yeah, she, she vanishes from being a, a central participant to being an observer to actually being a character. And in a way, that's a process that helps me save her and keep her in the story, which is a great thing. I get to hold on to her and weave her into this story. On the other hand, it's sad because at the end, she's not standing there with me. This has to be a little bittersweet, right? You have this book come out, which is always exciting. You're getting covered in, you know, the same Yiddish publications that covered your great-grandmother's murder, the the same Canadian publications. There's this sort of like really nice circuitousness, but you can't really share this with her. Nope, not, not at all. I really hoped I could. And that's why along the way, as I would find things out, I would tell her immediately. I told her every detail I found out, every conversation I had, every cousin I met, every photo someone sent me. I made sure to go over it with her as soon as it happened. So I could see maybe this would spark a a recollection or maybe it would be interesting to her. And that did hold on longer than it seemed. I I remember I had gone to, to visit her in the home with Mark, my husband, and I was sitting facing my mother and he's sitting next to her holding her hand. And I'm telling her about the trip I just took to Winnipeg and the cousins I met, who again were cousins she had never met. We'd never heard of them. They were second cousins. But I'm explaining who they were. And she's not even looking at me. She's staring into space, completely blank. There's no recognition. She, I'm just talking into a void. And Mark turns to me and he says, switch places with me. I said, why? He said, just do it. So I switch places. He's sitting facing her. Now I'm next to her holding her hand. He said, every time you mention a name of a relative, she squeezes my hand. There's some recognition here. Or if you show her a photo, she'll squeeze your hand in recognition. And it, it wasn't a reflex. It was whatever I'd say, you're Zeta Javid, she'd squeeze my hand. And there's no change on her face. I couldn't tell by looking at her. It wasn't until I had her hand in mine that I could tell there was still this sort of vestigial recognition that was left that held on long after language and even facial expression had gone. Well, this book is an, an amazing tribute to her and to the crazy story of your family that you do sort of satisfyingly solve. I, well, that's all I'll say about it. But Wayne Hoffman, 
The book is the end of her racing against Alzheimer's to solve a murder. You are our colleague, our friend, and we're just so proud of you. And I was relieved to hear that it really was Lee Harvey Oswald. (laughs) Amazing how he travels through history. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wayne. You're the best. Mailbox, lots of great mail. Uh, a lot of it about TV. We were talking about how bad the portrayal of Jews on the Sex and the City reboot is. People wrote in with with thoughts on places that also got it wrong and places we could go to, to get it right. Here's a letter from Kate. She writes, Dear Unorthodox Crew, I'm listening to this week's episode and I paused it to sit down and write this. Liel asked when the last time was we saw a genuine communal Jewish moment on TV and Mark said The Wonder Years. He was talking about 30 years ago, but just a few weeks ago on the reboot of The Wonder Years, there was an episode in January titled Brad Mitzvah and Kate wants us to go check it out. I have to do that. I've heard the reboot is good. Rebecca Pasternak wrote us a long, 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 long letter and we loved every word of it, but I'm just going to read this choice little excerpt from the middle. She writes, I agree with Mark's statement that Harry Goldenblatt is like a 1960s stereotype of an Ashkenazi Jew. He's fumbling, sweaty, and always makes cringy, self-hating remarks with awkward Yiddish interjections. For example, how about these old Sex in the City clips? Ooh, hot. Excuse me? Outside. I'm schwitzing like a pudding at a picnic. Believe me, I never thought a shiksa goddess like you would fall for a putz like me. You're not a putz. Do you even know what putz means? Yes. Schmuck. You sure you're not Jewish? What Jew below the age of 90, Rebecca Pasternak asks, actually talks like this? And also, why is there always klezmer music in the background when there are multiple <laughs> Jews in a scene? Rebecca Pasternak, NYC. The the Klezmer music, that was a that's some shrewd observation. I had never noticed it. But yes, they go very, very klezmery whenever two Jews show up. I mean, except all the Jews who are in the cast, like Sarah Jessica Parker, who don't play Jewish, but nevertheless. Now this one is really special. That's my yeshiva. I wanted to capture the exuberance of youth. Charlotte quickly became intoxicated by his talent, his strangeness, and the smell of his wool. Magical. Leah, will you read the next letter, which is kind of a, a, a pay-in to Stephanie? With great pleasure. Just wanted you folks to know how much I enjoyed listening to the podcast. The overall vibe is funny, warm, and simply reinforces my Jewish roots. Shout out to Stephanie, who knows my brother-in-law, Rob Remler. That's a fun name to say, Rob Remler. Take care, David Moss and Leslie Remler Moss. P.S. Don't ever get rid of News of the Jews. Why would we ever get rid of News of the Jews? So many Jews, so much news. Well, just to talk about ourselves more. This is amazing. So Robert Remler, I actually have never heard of him as Rob Remler, was my dad's very good friend from Forest Hills High School. Shout out to Mm. Forest Hills. I feel like that's like a good portion of our listenership went to Forest Hills High School. All the Ramones, you know, who are listening today. Um, Yeah, my parents set up Robert and Margie Remler, and my dad is the godfather to Harrison and Panina, their kids. The Sandak. I feel like you're trolling me there by bringing up godfathers, because as we discussed. I know, and I actually didn't remember till this moment that my dad is a godfather. How do we not have Howard Butnick on to talk about being a Jewish godfather? Just when we thought we were out, she pulls us back in. (laughs) 
Here's a fun letter from Ari Campbell of West Orange, New Jersey. Also on the TV thread, he says, I was bothered by what happened on one of my favorite shows, The Goldbergs. The family's Jewish, but they barely mention religion or holidays. And they act like a typical family from that time period. However, there was an episode where the grandfather of the family, played by the late Jewish actor George Siegel, was bothered by his daughter putting up a, quote, Hanukkah bush and ignoring several generations of Jewish history. But this is not the episode that bothered me. Rather, it was when Siegel died last year, and his character had to die as well on the show, of course. Rather than giving him a standard Jewish burial, followed by Shiva, the character was cremated and his ashes placed under a tree. Yes, it was a plot point because Grandpa loved the tree, but the writers basically ignored everything about Jewish death rituals and just decided that this would be a proper send-off for the character. As a religious Jew, I was upset that they handled it this way. I wonder if there was any discussion about following Jewish practice with his death rather than the cremation idea. Ari Campbell, West Orange, New Jersey. Uh, no, no, Ari. We know, without even investigating, we know that nobody thought of that and nobody in the writer's room knew anything about Tahara or Shiva or Shomrim or St. Tehillim or any of it. They just cremated him and put him under the tree. People get mad about the Goldbergs a lot because they don't talk about Jewishness. And I've actually never watched the Goldbergs, so I'm completely speaking out of turn, which I'm fully comfortable doing. Um, Is it possible, obviously, besides the Shiva thing, isn't it kind of like you want a Jewish show to be Jewish and they don't have to talk about being Jewish? Or is it we want them to see them doing Jewish things? I'm wondering, I'm trying to have a, a take in defense of the Goldbergs more broadly. Like, it's so obvious that they're Jewish that we they don't need to talk about it. The way I don't talk, I mean, I talk about it on the show, but. Obviously Jewish because it's the Goldbergs? Yeah. Right, I was going to say, it feels like when you call a show the Goldbergs, if you were looking for a name that, that signals Jewish, you've chosen it, right? At that point, I almost feel like you take on some obligation to be responsible. About, I, Stephanie, should you and I commit to watching four episodes of The Goldberg? You and I who have never seen the show. Yes. and let's, let's watch some. I'll put it up on the Facebook group for people to tell us the best apps. Thank you for, for excluding me. I, I genuinely appreciate it because I'm not watching. Do you need like a VPN to watch to stream from Israel, don't you? Yeah, you're in Israel. You don't have TV there. How high tech are they? <laughs> okay, here's the other thing. So One of our colleagues, Gabriel Sanders, pointed out that there's a good bat mitzvah scene on the new season of Pen15 last year. So I think that that's another bat mitzvah episode we should— Is that how you say the name of that show? It's not just pronounced penis? No, it's called (laughs) Pen15. Because the point of it is, right, I remember reading from the reviews that on, like, a calculator, you like, Pen15 looks like penis, Yeah, it's like a joke, but it's like a joke teen girls make, and the the show's called Pen15. The show's not called Penis, Mark. You guys teach me stuff all the time. It's You know, it's good to learn that here and not, like, from your daughters. (laughs) From my daughters. Where you're like, hey, hey, ladies, are are we watching— that pe- I assume that in this world you call your daughters ladies. Hey ladies, you watching you watching penis? You watching that penis show? All right now, let's let's move to the segment where we help our audience. Hey unorthodox, I was wondering if y'all could touch on the struggle to find or maintain religious community in the pandemic. I live in a place where synagogues are still meeting over Zoom and eschewing meet and greet time following services due to COVID. I'm hoping to convert to Judaism, but becoming part of a synagogue community in this landscape seems impossible. I'd love to hear if others are feeling the same and how they're dealing with it, particularly since I'm guessing the pandemic has prompted many to seek spirituality as it did with me. Kindly, Margaret from Rochester. So let's, it's a great question and one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Let's zero in on the fact that you're trying to convert and you're having trouble finding synagogue community. First of all, you are from the greater Rochester community. So maybe we'll get some phone calls on that. And I want to throw it out to the listenership, to the J crew to write in with ideas for you. Like until the last wave, the last gasp of Omicron has passed us. And until stuff is really meeting in person again, any ideas for how Margaret can, can connect to Jewish community, maybe get on the path to conversion. I just, I want to, I want to crowdsource this one. And I don't want to kick the hornet's nest any more than I absolutely have to. uh, But I hope that any rabbis and synagogue administrators out there who are rightly, rightly uh, taking a lot of precautions, 
We'll also hear this voice of Margaret's, who represent, I think, a lot of other people who genuinely need this spiritual connection and who just cannot find it in any other way than the old-fashioned face-to-face ways that Judaism and its infinite wisdom the creed that we do. So caution is one thing, but the essential, necessary, life-saving essence of shul is another. And I hope that would also be taken into consideration as folks decide whether to resume meeting in person or not. And now the voicemail of all voicemails so far in the year 5782. Producer Josh, would you play us Australian Ed's voicemail? G'day guys, Ed here from Sydney, Australia. I'm hoping you might be able to offer me a little bit of advice. I'm a patrilineal Jew of Hungarian descent. Uh, My great-grandfather was a senior rabbi in Budapest. And I've been on a conversion journey through a reform synagogue here for a few years, COVID delays and the like. It was all going well until recently when I was talking to my sponsoring rabbi about circumcision. Uh, I said, yeah, I've got an appointment with a urologist, it's all good. And then I explained, you know, as if anyone looks forward to it. I mean, it's a, a brutal little blood ritual um, that mutilates the body. It's, you know, I doubt very much if you in, invented circumcision today, it would be allowed. I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was an offhand remark. Uh, a few days later, I found that I had been um, disavowed by the Bayat Din. I had been expelled from the conversion program and my attendance privileges at synagogue had been revoked. That last bit I'm really, really sad about. I go every week. I love it. I don't know what to do. This is the most progressive reform community in Australia. Where do you go from here? What do I do? I I really don't know. Any help would be gratefully appreciated. Thanks, guys. Liel and Stephanie, do you mind if I take first cut at this? Go crazy. The the first thing I want to say is this is so crazy that I, and, and you'll forgive me for saying this, Part of me doubts that this is true. I, I, my first thought was, are we being pranked? Because, because the words attendance privilege at shul have been revoked. It just, there's something about that makes you think if some, if some anti-Semite were trying to make a Jewish community look bad, they might give us this letter. And also the fact that if you're a patrilineal Jew in most of world liberal Judaism, that's actually enough for you to be considered Jewish. So if in fact this call is legit, then it says some very odd things about what's going on with Australian progressive Jewry. Hey, producer Josh here. Look, I get why Mark is skeptical. So I did reach out to Ed and ask him who the rabbi was and the shul and some other relevant details. And suffice it to say, I believe him and we think this letter is legit. Now back to the rest. And I guess I would just say... I'm sure a lot of American reform rabbis would love to step in and and help dance you along the path. I I don't know. That's all I've got, Liel and Stephanie. I I share this sense of wonderment from this call about which I find so many things puzzling. But but here's the thing that that I really kind of want to ask, Ed. Look, if indeed, let's be honest, there is absolutely no justification to treat anyone in this manner, especially not a person, you know, genuinely and openly seeking a a spiritual home in a community that's, according, as Mark said, to most progressive forms of Judaism already accepted. It's, it's unforgivable no matter what. However, I think, Ed, this should also occasion some questioning on your end, because this is a central part of Judaism, and yes, you could look at its historical context and, and all other sort of you know scholarly issues and, and come up with a host of reservations, but this is a central part of Judaism. It is not 
an add-on. It is not sort of like a little bug in the system. It is it is the covenant. It is as kind of critical to who we are as the other foundational rituals. And I think that if it if it really, really bothers you, if you see it as nothing but a mutilation and a, and a nasty little bloodletting, as, as you so eloquently put it, uh, I, I think you may want to take this opportunity to take a beat and examine what your relationship to Judaism is. If it's cultural and it comes from a kind of other perspective, that's fine. But we're also religion, is what I'm saying. It we is all- also a religious belief. Yes, but an adult circumcision, I I don't know. Cut Ed some slack there. Literally. Um, Ed, I feel for you, and I think you're always welcome in Armenian on this show. Amen. Mazel tov. Stephanie Butnick, I hear you have a primo mazel tivo. So last year on the conversion episode, I talked to my little, little, and my little, 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 two women in my sorority who both converted to Judaism. And so you heard from Danny and Consuelo. And Consuelo married Noah Levy this weekend, and I'm so happy for them. They were married by Rabbi Joshua Stanton from East End Temple, where she did her conversion. And I'm just so, so, so happy for them. Consuelo Levy is a Jew. Mazel tov to Consuelo and Noah. I would like to extend a hearty mazel tov. As some of our listeners slash tablet readers know, tablet spent last week in Los Angeles, California, where we met a host of wonderful, warm people. I want to extend a hearty mazel tov to everyone in Adat Shalom Synagogue, which, as you may remember, was the site of our still much talked about uh, last Los Angeles appearance and, and hopefully next to, particularly to Rabbi Nolan Leibowitz, who as always rocked the drosh. And I'm sitting there and, and this woman named Malka Michelle comes on, on the stage and starts chanting Torah in the most absolute perfect Hebrew pronunciation with het and ein, as well it ought to be chanted. It just was such a delight. And Malka, rock on. And I want to take this moment to say a farewell to uh, a man who meant as much to my childhood as uh, any three of my siblings. Okay, N- not that was not fair to Daniel, Jonathan, and Rachel, but it's hard to imagine childhood without any of them or without Ivan Reitman and the movies he gave us. Animal House, Ghostbusters, many more. Also, his daughter, Catherine Reitman, a former Jew of the week, a uh, terrific talent in her own right. We send our condolences to the whole Reitman mishpucha. And before the credits, we'll leave you with a little of the art Reitman gave us. The name's Francis Sawyer. But everybody calls me Psycho. Any of you guys call me Francis, and I'll kill you. Ooh. <laughs> you just made the list, buddy. Lighten up, Francis. (laughs) You're all in this together. One of these men may save your life one of these days. You understand that? Then again, maybe one of us won't. (laughs) (laughs) Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Robert Scarmuccia. Our associate producer is Quinn Waller. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Cleo Rose of Congregation Eitz Chaim in Winnipeg, Canada. And we come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Love a delicious cucumber gazpacho. 
cucumber? What are you, a monster? You've what never had mean? a cucumber gazpacho? No, don't don't of course I have, but that's like saying, oh, what you never had, you know, alcohol-free, you know, peach-flavored beer. It's the best Zima. kind of beer there is. Like, right? It's like you never had a Zima. Uh, what you don't like beer? Like, right? I like beer. You not are comparing this. my wife's late grandmother's cucumber gazpacho recipe Precisely. to to I, from, that she that she smuggled out of Auschwitz mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to Zima. Indeed. And he got it past the gazpacho, literally the <laughs> gazpacho police. Literally, she had to get it past the gazpacho police. <laughs> All right, do oh we want to do the- Lador Vador. <laughs> Lador Vador. All right, 